You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 114, covering the week of March 26th through March 30th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want to support the Abbeville Institute, you can go to abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Drop down that. It'll have a, a section for uh, donor options. You can go there. You can donate monthly for as little as $3 a month if you're a student or $5 a month if you're not a student or annually $25 a year if you're a student or $50 a year if you're not a student. There's other options as well. But go on out there and check that out. Also, we want to remind you that we do exist on those tax-deductible contributions, so any little bit you can contribute is greatly appreciated. Also want to remind you to follow us on Facebook uh, and, and on Twitter as well, at Abbeville Institute. Also, subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, our, with the new social media algorithms, it's much harder to see our information, so if you do like what we put up there, please share it around with your friends, including this podcast. Also, if you go to abbevilleinstitute.org, at the top of the page, you will see a little button that says get a free gift in your inbox. You just got to give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and the weekly email for the Abbeville Institute Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also want to remind you to go on out and get our app. You can go to your uh, app application store on your mobile device and look for Abbeville Institute. You can download our app. You can also pick up this podcast there along with all of our lectures, which are free. That app is completely free to you. So go on out there and pick it up and get that. And we do have Abbeville Institute Apparel. If you go on out to abbevilleinstitute.org at the top of the page again where it says support, you click on that, drop down a menu, it'll say shop. Click on that, it'll take you out to our apparel. You can get embroidered shirts, hats, all kinds of great stuff. So get that material as well. Okay, so we had a really good week. I just want to also say happy Easter. Easter will be this Sunday. Um, so we had a very interesting week at the Institute, and all of the material that we produce this week has to do with Southern culture. And I think at the heart of everything we do, when you look at what's going on in America today, and, and people, it's, it's cliche to talk about a cultural war, but that's essentially what's happening um, in, in the United States. And, of course, the South, uh, the s- Southern culture itself, uh, is under the heel of the central authority. So uh, there's certainly a, a situation going on in America where the most traditional of all cultures is under attack. And I think we can give example after example. There was just a piece that National Review Online posted by the notorious Victor Davis Hanson where he talked about uh, the Confederate mind and how the progressive uh, era is simply a byproduct of the Confederate mind and all of the identity politics going on is simply part of the Confederate mind. This is just preposterous. But this is unfortunately what we get and what qualifies as conser- quote-unquote conservatism today. And that's really unfortunate because it used to be conservatives, take Russell Kirk, for example, love the South. They love John, John C. Calhoun. They saw value in the South. They saw value in what the Southern tradition offered for America. And they were certainly sympathetic with people like Calhoun and Randolph uh, and many other of the great heroes that the South produced. But now it's the South is the alien other. The only thing you're allowed to admire in the South would be elements of its pop culture, which would be its music or its cooking, which are great things. Uh, But anything else that has to do with the very conservative traditional nature of the South has to be demonized and put down. And that's, uh, that's the unfortunate part of modern American culture. And so one of the things we want to do with the Abbeville Institute, of course, 
is promote traditional Southern culture and explain how that is true and valuable today. How is Southern culture valuable in the modern age when we have individuals who seem to lack culture entirely? When you look at, for example, some popular things going on, this current controversy over gun control, the individuals who are driving that, people say, well, they're from the South. They're really not. They're transplants. They're not from the South. They don't have any element of Southern culture in them. And so that's the important part of this. You can get rid of politics. You, as long as you can write the songs and keep your culture, you can maintain some type of autonomy, even in this very uh, destructive modern society. And on my own podcast, this is why I talk about think locally, act locally. And oftentimes we look for political solutions, but there aren't any political solutions really to this massive problem. It has to be cultural. And one of the pieces that we ran this week talks about that. Now, um, I was actually off for this week, so the pieces we ran were, um, most of them were uh, produced uh, earlier in Southern Partisan Magazine. So we didn't have, we had one piece that was fairly uh, new material this week, uh, but the rest of it, um, was from earlier Southern part of mag- part- Partisan Magazines going back in the 80s and 90s. But they were all important in terms of, well, two pieces this week were new. So three were from Southern Partisan. But they're all important for that what I just discussed, which was this, in, this idea of culture and this attack that's going on, Southern symbols, Southern culture. It's not new. I mean, we all know that. Anyone that's been around long enough knows this is just, it's ramping up again, but this is something that's been ongoing for a while. So let's start with, um, we're actually not going to start with the Monday piece because I'm going I'm to swing back around to that one. But this idea of culture being central and why it still matters. And that was a book review that we ran on Tuesday. It was a review of regionalism and nationalism in the United States, the attack on Leviathan by uh, Donald Davidson. And, and Mark Winchell, who is a, uh, uh, the late Mark Winchell, great writer, uh, taught at Clemson for years. Uh, but this was a, a, a book that Russell Kirk actually brought out and edited and uh, reproduced and republished in 1991 through Transaction Books. And so here's an example of, of Russell Kirk saying the South is important. The South is an important part of American culture and their attack on Leviathan and what that really meant, their attack on centralization was a critical component of understanding conservatism in America and what what that actually means. Uh, and I like how Mark Winchell summarizes this book at the end. He says, quote, it has been argued that the Civil War was a conflict between the abstract principles of the North and the concrete loyalties of the South. What this amounts to is two distinct concepts of liberty. Lincoln conceived liberty as kind of platonic ideal to be pursued by a benevolent central government and enforced, if need be, at the point of a bayonet. This ideal has led in our own time to an interventionist foreign policy and a welfare state that consumes a quarter of the gross national product. The alternative is to discard the platonic ideal and to see liberty as the accommodation people make for each other in actual communities. Not only is the federal government not needed to enforce this kind of liberty, but its presence is a positive impediment to civic peace. St. Augustine defined a people as, quote, a gathering of many rational individuals united by love things held in common. Donald Davidson believed that it was in the regions of our nation that, this, that its people were to be found. So, but the important part about that is Davidson understood that the war, as Winchell points out, 
was a political conquest, but not a cultural conquest, at least not at that point. Now, this piece was written in 1991, actually 1992, so uh, over, over 20 years ago now, 25 years ago. And in that 25 years, you have seen, I think this is the important part and why this is you know, kind of depressing in a way, but you have seen the cultural imperialism of the North really take over in the last 25 years. What you're getting now in America is a one-size-fits-all cultural policy, and that's under the guise of multiculturalism. What they really don't mean is multiculturalism. What they really mean, as Winchell points out, is a unitarian culture. What Davison was saying was, look, I mean, the South still survived after the war, and its critique was important because what we needed to do was create regional entities, regional entities that left each other alone. Even the concept of liberty, as Winchell points out, I don't think he gets it entirely right when he talks about you know, Lincoln's idea of liberty compared to the South's idea of liberty. It actually is deeper than that. Deeper than that. It goes back to the colonial period. But it is important to note that there are two concepts, at least two concepts, of liberty in America going back to the 17th century. One is a concept of liberty where the community is more important than the individual. The other is individual liberty. And what you find in the South, for the most part, is rugged individualism. Now, you'll find that in the North, too, in certain parts. You know, for example, um, uh, James Fenimore Cooper wrote a lot about rugged individualism in his leather-stocking tales, and he admired that. So you still had it. Of course, Cooper being from New York, New York was always this different part of the North, particularly the western part of the state. But still, you had it. Uh, but in the South, you had this, this attachment to this rugged individualism, this liberty, resistance to tyranny. In the North, when you look at the Puritan concept of liberty, it was different. It was the liberty of the community over individual liberty. And it was enforced at the point of the bayonet. This is Lincoln's concept of liberty. And so now, it's, it's the freedom from, not the freedom to. And this is what you're looking at with some of the current debates. It's the freedom from. I don't want to be afraid of this. I don't want to be afraid of that. I don't want to, to want. It's the freedom from things rather than the freedom to. And you found that in America in the earliest elements of the, of the American experience. Southerners looking at the world as a great bounty to be enjoyed and to prosper. Northerners looking at the world as something to be tolerated. The, the environment to be tolerated. It was different. And so in that, you have this cultural imperialism that's certainly uh, part of it. And of course, as Winchell points out, Davidson actually admired the North for what they were as long as they stayed in the North. He spent a lot of time in New England. He said New England's fine for New Englanders. And, and he also believed that the South could not be exported anywhere else. It had to be just the South. But you leave each other alone. It's that federalism, that real federalism that allowed the union to work and once that was gone the union really couldn't work it had to be enforced as lincoln did and as every president in the last 150 years has done from a much stronger central authority a growing centralization and now it's cultural it's not just political it's become cultural and this is why americans are angry because you have one group of americans that actually both groups of americans which calhoun pointed out are going to uh, scramble over the spoils but of power. But the other thing they're going to try to do is that 50 plus 1% is going to try to dominate the other group, and that creates anger. That is the problem. If we had a real federal republic, you wouldn't have these conflicts. 
you could have a state that has uh, you know very lenient. Just take the issue of, of firearms. You could have a state that has very lenient gun control laws and a state that has very strict gun control laws, and that would be fine. This wouldn't be a national, quote-unquote, national issue whatsoever. It was never designed to be. But you see, when you break these things down and you start having cultural imperialism, that's what happens. This is why this piece is entitled, Good Fences Make Good Neighbors. The fences, the fences that need to be there, uh, are important in this cultural conflict. So with that in mind, culture, uh, it's also important that in your own culture you police your own backyard. And the piece on Thursday talked about that. It was written by the late Tom Landis, and it was published in 1987, but it's, it's, it's about the Confederate battle flag and how this thing has been distorted and perverted by various groups. And the, he wrote this in 1987 after a, a couple of uh, Klan rallies in Georgia and South Carolina. And he said, look, these knuckleheads need to go. They're abusing our flag. They're abusing our symbols, and it's time to get rid of them. Maybe we need to take the battle flag, the this, this square flag, and say that's ours, and they can have this naval jack. Uh, they can have the Navy flag, Confederate naval flag, and, and that's not really even us. We're going to take the battle flag. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is people have tried this and said, you know, look at South Carolina. The picture we used was of South Carolina and the compromise that was made for the Soldiers' Monument, put a battle flag there. Now, of course, that's come down. But still, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, there were people talking about this flag is being co-opted. We need to take it back. We need to understand that some people are abusing it, um, that uh, we need to publicly proclaim, as he says, that, that flag is not a symbol of slavery or oppression, that it represents everything good in the Old South, honor, Christian piety, family integrity, traditional morality, and freedom from regimentation. Those are the things that, that flag needs to represent, and those are the things we need to do. And so that is what we really need to do with um, our symbols. He says, let's fight for that flag. Let's do it. And, of course, this is what we're trying to do here with the Abbeville Institute. And he, and he points out that there, are, you know, there were many people in the South um, who were opposed to some of the nasty things going on at the time during Reconstruction and after and the in the Gilded Age and into the New South period, there were people resisting those things, and unfortunately they lost. There were Southerners who didn't like some of the things happening in the South that now Southerners are all painted with broad strokes. Well, you're all just this way. He also made a very important point. He said, white Southerners and black Southerners have a history of shared suffering. Indeed, we have more in common with one another than we do with most Yankees. This is true. This is always true. So Southern culture is deeper than just Skin color, as anyone who's lived in the South understands. But looking at it from the outside, people don't understand that. So that said, this, this idea of culture and in, in some of these... The, the piece we ran on Wednesday was about Hank Williams Sr., in fact. And, of course, our summer school this year is going to be on Southern music, and we're going to talk about Hank Williams. This appeared in 1985, but it's a fun little... It's by Bill Kuhn, who's a great, great writer... Um, and it's a fun journey through the South, namely through Alabama, where Hank Williams is from. Uh, he was also a professor of, professor of English at Clemson, so was Mark uh, Winchell. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's about this, this culture that produced Hank Williams. Hank Williams could only be created in the South. 
You couldn't have had Hank Williams from any place else other than rural Alabama. And all the funny little stories that happened, all the things that happened with Hank and his legacy and the, and the, the wives and, and uh, the girlfriends and the children and all the things that went on. I mean, it, and the fa- extended family members and how Hank became a symbol of something that he really wasn't even in his own time. But that was okay. It was okay because Hank himself, the image of Hank became Southern music for a lot of people. It, it became what the South was. And so that's the wonderful part about this little piece. And I think you know, why when you read this uh, and you see the culture of Hank Williams and what that is and where he's from, this is, this is the only thing that produced this type of country music. Uh, you couldn't get it anywhere else unless it was you know, Central Alabama. Central Alabama had to produce Hank Williams. Even Hank Williams Jr. is a product of Central Alabama. So that culture that Davidson was talking about, that Winchell was talking about, that Landis is talking about, that Hank Williams personified. This is the thing that makes it so important to put these fences up, to say, okay, yeah, I mean, Hank Williams came from a culture that parts of that culture are just, I mean, they're not, they're not great things, but it is what produced Hank. Uh, and so when you have that, this is, this is part of Hank. This is part of the South. Uh, this is part of Southern life. I mean, you get it. And one of the, one of the lectures we're going to have this year at the, uh, at the summer school is how Southerners took other music and really made it their own. And the, where all this music comes from, there's, there's not one part of, of American music that isn't Southern in origin. Not one. Uh, and so that's gonna, it's a wonderful lecture, and we'll hear more about that when we get there. But... Um, this little piece on Hank is well worth the read just because of the, the look at Southern culture in Central Alabama and, and what that was like and how that produced. It could only produce a man like Hank Williams. So, and that's, that's of course, New South. I mean, you're getting to the New South period and the poverty that Hank Williams came out of helped produce Hank Williams. And poverty was not something that was Southern before the war. We, we've talked about that on this podcast several times, that the South is actually a very wealthy section before the war. And it was not until uh, after the war that the South became really impoverished. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize, that the South per capita had the highest per capita in the United States before the war. And then it was only after the war, punished by poverty, as we've discussed, the South became this very poor section. And so certainly Hank Williams came from that, from that poverty. And you see it in the other two pieces that we have this week. The, the first uh, was published on Friday. It was entitled Trump's Aluminum Tariff, A Teachable Moment by Philip Lee. If you haven't gotten Philip Lee's book on reconstruction, by the way, you need to. It's L-E-I-G-H going out to Amazon. They've got it. It's the best book on Reconstruction in the last uh, you know, 50 years, certainly. Uh, and so you need to go out there and get that. It's entitled Southern Reconstruction. 
and he does a wonderful job looking at Southern economy and, and what that means. And, and I think that the, the conclusion, it's a very short piece, but the conclusion, he says this, the story of the domestic bauxite industry is only one example of the North's opportunistic exploitation of Southern natural resources after the end of the Civil War. The former Confederacy was essentially transformed into an internal colon- colony and remained so for nearly a century. Her residents, black and white, paid the price. This is true. See, the South was an economic colony of the North after the war, and now it's becoming a cultural colony of the North. And there was a period of time where Southern, all of your, of your aluminum mines, or actually all your aluminum deposits, are actually in the South. There's uh, one in Eufaula, Alabama, Andersonville, Georgia, Central Arkansas, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Spotswood, Virginia. There's a lot of, of bauxite. And, of course, uh, there was a period of time um, during World War II when bauxite was a big business in the South. But when the war was over, when the war was over, that went away. Because it was more important for Northern interests to have a low tariff on aluminum so they could get it from international sources. Or, uh, you know, what, do whatever they had to do for the South. But um, the important things, th- th- this tariff only benefited the North, or the lack of the tariff only benefited the North. Uh, and he says, in contrast to the bauxite mines, which are in the South, Americans, America's aluminum smelters are mostly in the North and West. They oppose bauxite tariffs because they want to keep their manufacturing costs as low as possible. But they applaud tariffs and quotas that protect them against finished goods imports. Protecting the domestic bauxite market, for their reason, is contrary to the received wisdom of free trade economic theory. But protecting the domestic market for the finished goods, well, that's different. This is true. So this modern situation of, you know, we're going to have a tariff, are we not going to have a tariff, what's going on with the tariff... All of that can be weaved in, in one way or another, to the New South and the New South economy. What's going on in the South and how the South has long been a cultural and economic colony of the North. We focus far too much on the four-year period of the war. The South is 400 years of history. And the New South period, I would, I would implore, again, I will say it over and over, go out and study the New South. The New South not even the Reconstruction period, which is fine, but the New South really needs, particularly the, the late 19th, early 20th century, then that part of the, of the South really needs much more scholarly attention. And if I could go back and do it over again, that's what I would focus on. Because there's so many things in that New South period, the critiques that were made on American culture, American economics, whatever the case may be, are prescient. They're important for understanding where we are today. And this example of World War II, that's the New South. That's the New South. And you look at those areas. If you look at Andersonville or you follow Alabama, they're impoverished. They could, they could greatly benefit from a, from a good bauxite industry. Uh, and so it would be wonderful to have that. But, of course, that doesn't benefit the North. It doesn't fit the Northern conception of what we need to do in American society. So we won't do it. Uh, and so this is where you know Trump's aluminum tariff, again, as Philip Lee points out, this is a teachable moment to understand Southern history. And in that last little bit of talking about, you know, what happened to the South, the last piece was actually Monday's piece, but it was entitled Stony Creek and Virginia History by Cliff Page. And Cliff Page is a great artist, sculptor. 
but he is he is a member of the SCV, and he likes to do uh, he likes to tour around on his motorcycle. And he wrote this little story about Stony Creek, Virginia, and of course his uh, one of his ancestors fought there. But the the interesting thing about this is that this little this little town, Stony Creek, has just been forgotten. Uh, there's a little uh, Baptist church there that has there's a picture on the on the website in the article that has two circles in front of the church where cannonballs hit it. In fact, this is where Confederate soldiers took refuge. So you got this church there. You have some markers. You have one of the cannons that were sunk. But there's these little towns all over the South that were impoverished after the war, that were that were great uh, economic centers at one time. Of course, whether it was the railroad left, the railroad showed up, or whatever the case may be. Uh, these towns have been largely forgotten. That is the changing nature of the South. And I, you could say that you know all over the United States. Well, as the industry moves in or moves out, you have these ghost towns or these rust belt towns, whatever the case may be. But you find it a lot in the South. Uh, there are There's a, actually an entire book written on, on Alabama ghost towns. Uh, that uh, these towns were at one time great bustling industrial centers or, or commercial centers before the war, whatever the case may be, and they're gone now. And some of that had to do with the changing economy and how the, the agricultural, uh, the, the great cash crops of the South changed uh, or the great commercial centers changed, whatever the case may be. But certainly... When you look at touring these areas, it's important to rekindle that spirit and go back and find these things. And this is what you know Cliff is talking about. Hey, I never had been here before. I rode my motorcycle down there on a warm day, and you got all this history. And maybe it's time for Southerners to go out and really find this stuff, not just the war. And he's focusing on the war and some of the important landmarks from the war, maybe things that have been forgotten. But not just that, important parts of the South that are off the beaten path that really, and this is the little towns we've talked about, you know, Mississippi and, and South Carolina and Virginia. And these are these travel stories, these little towns out of the way places that have a real history, a real people. You know, Mayberry was interesting because for so many years, and fictional May, Mayberry, because there are real people that lived there, this real small town. It was a real small southern town built on a vision of what North Carolina used to be like. And so that's why that, that story was so popular. And there were little towns across the South. And, of course, as you get cultural imperialism, that, that starts to change that. These towns go away. They start to fade away. People move to cities. There aren't economic opportunities. People don't want to be farmers, whatever the case may be. Though I think there are opportunities because of the Internet and other things that allow people to do things that they couldn't do in their small little towns. So you still can have vibrant small towns. And maybe people need to start thinking about, you know what, I could probably get that cheaper at Amazon or you know some other online retailer, but I'm going to shop in my own little town. I'm going to buy it here, and I'm going to support that local economy here because these people are these people are necessary. And I know that sounds kind of like you know the 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 greens, the you know the, you got to go out and you got to avoid Walmart and these other things. But certainly community is important. This is what the agrarians were talking about, the 12 Southerners were talking about, maintaining that cultural identity, maintaining that regionalism. It's very important. If we can do anything, if we could learn anything from those Southerners, it would be that. It would be that one lesson, maintaining culture. And the only way you can do that, really, is to start focusing on family and community. Political solutions are never going to change anything in a lot of ways. I mean, we talk about political solutions, but you can't have them unless you have a culture that's going to be preserved by a political solution. If that culture is gone, 
if the only thing you have at the end of the day are acceptable parts of a culture, which would be, you know, say, your music, even that's not acceptable all the time, or your food, which, again, even isn't even acceptable all the time. If that's all you, if, if the outside is telling you what's acceptable about your culture, you really don't have a culture anymore. If it's, well, we like football and we like basketball, and that's, that's what the South is. And that's great. You know, Southerners do those things better. Of course, all ball games were invented in the North, but Southerners do those things better, without a doubt. But it's about preserving something deeper than that. It's ensuring that those things survive beyond that. And if we can just do that, if we can explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition in that way, and putting up these fences and maintaining regionalism and thinking locally and acting locally, and, and thinking about the critique that the South offered of America and, and making sure we hammer that home, you know, consumerism is not very good. Uh, this, this industrial capitalist society in some ways doesn't work. Markets are, as Clyde Wilson said, markets are great, but they can't be the only thing. There has to be something deeper to that. There has to be a culture. We have to understand there are two concepts of liberty, and that liberty, the liberty of the community, is alien to individual liberty. You can't have both. They don't work together. One is Yankee, one is Southern. And so we need to realize that as we think about modern Southern culture and what the South can offer, the critique the South can offer of, uh, against modern American society. And we need to always be consciously doing those things to promote that. Until next time, good day. Good day.